what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Frank Turner is a singer-songwriter with a career spanning 20 years and counting. He's carved out that career as a hard-touring punk folk troubadour known for his unique sound which blends poignant lyricism, folk influences and emotive rock vocals. His themes are varied, but his songs have touched on national identity, being non-religious, regret and the liberating power of music. His most recent and ninth studio album was released in February 2022. He has a long list of accolades, including being personally asked by Danny Boyle to perform at the London Olympics opening ceremony in 2012 and writing a Sunday Times best-selling memoir, The Road Beneath My Feet. Most importantly, he's a patron of Humanists UK. Frank Turner, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I thought we'd start with something that's obviously very relevant to your life and career and how you, how you spend your time. And that's with the the idea or the concept or the value of creativity. And I've heard you mm. uh, speak about and, and, and read you write about uh, creativity very warmly. So I get the impression it is an important uh, aspect of your worldview, of your beliefs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost more fundamental than that in a way, in the sense that it's, uh, it seems to me an inherent part of my character and needs to be creative in some way. Or other, and um, you know, throughout my life, I've been fortunate to have discovered useful, and one might even say practical ways <laughs> um, of of incorporating that into the way that I live my life. In fact, making it the focus of my life. But you know, I I seem to have some sort of deep seated need for self expression um, and for making sense of the world um, through creativity. So that's just sort of seems to be how it is. Really, it's not. It's sort of it's sort of so ingrained that it's difficult to sort of question in any way. It's always been the case in your life, you felt that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's difficult for me to remember in the very mists of time, but I mean, certainly since I discovered um, rock and roll music in the broadest sense of the term when I was about 10 years old, I fell in love. But I also, the very first thing I did was think, how do I do this too? How do I get involved? You know, um, as we've always been very participatory about anything that I that I love. Um, obviously, as you get older, you realize there are some things that you will never participate in, whether that's <laughs> kind of, you know, like um, Arctic fishing or space exploration or whatever it might be. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I heard I heard bands and I wanted a guitar straight away. Mm. It's strange, isn't it, that moment when you realize I had I, I had terrible alarm when I realized I would never captain a starship in the Federation, you know, in Star Trek. Yeah, well, there's also <laughs> there's that moment in like, I just turned 40 and suddenly there's quite a lot of high achieving people who are starting to be younger than me with, <laughs> with alarming regularity now. And I'm not sure how OK with that I am. <laughs> but you say that being creative or creating helps you make sense of things. Hmm. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's, this is a slightly facile thing to say, but it, it contains a fair amount of truth. Um, you know, there's a degree to which a lot of the art that I make is catharsis and is almost a sort of public <laughs> form of therapy, if you like. Because I've got older, I've realized I could probably do with some actual real private therapy as well. But um, <laughs> it certainly hasn't hurt. It's much less years. enjoyable for everyone else if you took all this behind closed doors. Yeah, 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 totally. I now do both. But, um, but yeah, there's definitely, you know... Uh, 
because I've been writing songs since I was sort of 10 years old, no, not well for a long time, I might add. Um, but, uh, you know, there was definitely a sense that um, uh, it's now become a kind of instinctive reaction. If anything happens in my life of any kind of significance or whatever, I find myself maybe not automatically writing a song about it, but at the very least kind of toying with phrases and expressions and that kind of thing. Um, and, it, and it seems to be that that's my method of detangling the world in a way you know and or at least figuring out what i think about it mm. so you're thinking out loud in a way with mm. the, with what you're creating yeah definitely and like and in the process it's i, I always find it uh, quite interesting and i'm in the middle of this right now and after releasing a record i can sort of the the process of discussing it with journalists tends to be a collaborative one in the sense that i'm in the middle of finding out what it is i have to say <laughs> as much as anybody else and what it is i think about things Lots of other people have said that, haven't they? How do I know what I think about it until I've said it? Right, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that's necessarily the best approach in all spheres of human activity. But I mean, (laughs) I would hope that, you know, kind of like negotiators, for example, uh, (laughs) might think that through more more carefully in advance. But for myself, yeah, there's definitely, it's quite, I mean, I've always been a fan of, and then therefore a creator of quite... um, hopefully quite unforced art, you know, like I sort of like, it's not quite automatic writing, but there's definitely, hopefully I try and have as few barriers between kind of uh, emotion, thought and expression as possible. You said at the beginning that it was, that you just happen to be, you know, creative, that that just happens to be the way that you find uh, meaning and and work things out is by uh, being creative in this way. Do you think that's that's true? Or do you think this is something that we can see in all human beings, you know, Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure that there is definitely, I, I suspect, a drive of a similar kind in everybody. But I mean, uh, one of my sisters, for example, is in the army and she's an incredible uh, logistician, if that's a word. Um, uh, and, you know, her, and, and, and there's a huge degree of creativity to that, you know, um, but uh, she's she's just hyper-organized and she can organize the world in, in very short space of time. And I find that hugely impressive because I'm not hyper-organized. <laughs> it's very useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I suspect there's definitely, there's, there are kind of some baser universal human um, tendencies and needs in, uh, at work here. Because I, I think that, I mean, there was an interesting person on this podcast. We had Isaac Hempstead Wright, who's, um, I don't know if you know him, he's an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's retraining as a scientist. And he, right. he, he was really interesting because he said that, you know, creativity was the thing that com- that almost was a bridge between those two things. He said being an actor was very creative, but then, sure. you know, contrary to his expectations, to some extent, being a scientist was very creative too. You had to do that. I, I, yeah, 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 sure. I, <clears throat> I can well imagine that it is. I mean, my um, GCSE science grades were nothing to write home about, so <laughs> I'm not going to get too far down parsing that subject. But yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's, it's um, uh, how to say this without straying into huge pretension, but there's something quite fundamentally human about that ability not just to see the world as it is, but as it might be. The, when you t- were talking about creativity, um, a moment ago, you you branched out from it a little and started talking about the participatory nature, at least, of your sure. own creativity and the way it connected you with others. Mm. Um, and I thought maybe you might want to talk a little bit about that because community and connections is also an important value for you, I think. Yeah, very much so. I mean, to me, music becomes an interesting activity when it becomes, at the very least, dialogue rather than monologue. Um and that's not true of all musicians. And I'm old enough now to not want to sit here and wag my finger at people who have a different opinion about this or anything else, really. But generally speaking, for me, 
you know, um, the moment in a show when the creation of sound becomes collective, and that's a very pretentious way of saying a sing-along um, or, or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that becomes more interesting to me than, than sort of demanding silence from my audience while I perform. You know, like there's, it, there's a sort of communality to it. And again, in a, in a similar way, but I think a distinct one from the creative impulse that we were talking about, I do feel very strongly that all humans have this kind of communalist need uh, in a way. And historically, um, you know, people have taken it from religion often. Uh, and, and that's fine. I don't have an issue with that personally. Um, some people take it from sport. Uh, some people take it from computer games. Um, I have to take it from, uh, from music. And there are no more powerful experiences in my life that, I, that I've had other than those moments when a real kind of show becomes a collective performance and and i say that both as a performer and as an audience member you know there's a there is this kind of quite sort of tribal kind of um sense of unity that that can that can come together and and it becomes very very kind of weird and exciting and i think that that's something i'm chasing very much um i mean slightly less highfalutin if you like um you know uh, for me when i was a kid i was sort of stumbled into one of the main ways i got into playing music was my older sister and her friends and some of my friends um uh, i was into kind of heavy metal but they were into more kind of song-based stuff whether it would be counting crows or weezer or the levelers or whatever and um i learned how to play those songs on acoustic guitar because they were easier to play than megadeth songs and i would um <laughs> and i would play the guitar but the thing about the whole situation, this was on summer holidays and on, on nights after trying and failing to get into the pub in Winchester and whatever else. Um, I would play the guitar so that we could all sing together. It wasn't me performing to a group of people. It was me facilitating a group activity. And I think that, that something of that experience and that activity has remained constant in the DNA of the way that I think about music and think about performance. You know, at its best, one of my shows is an opportunity for me to facilitate a group activity. And why for yourself do you think you're chasing those moments of communion or those moments of unity with others? Is it is it something you enjoy in the moment? Is it a peak experience? Um, or is it yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, I think it's a really important experience. I think it's food for the soul. I think that it has a lot you get quite existentialist here if you like but there's a sort of connection between the sort of the isolated human uh experience and sort of and you know uh, to a large degree i think a lot of art is about empathy most art is about empathy is about that sense of connection uh between atomized individuals i think it's important to say that this is not an experience that i wish to have 24 hours a day seven days a week i think that you'd go nuts and i think it's really important to have moments of solitude and isolation as well but you know, the Greeks said medanagan, nothing too much. Like um, the, the the trying to strike a balance of having a little of both, I think, is a healthy thing to do in life. But certainly, you know, um, uh, again, I'm going to the Greeks today. Euphoria is a real thing, you know, and, and I think a valuable thing and a, and a powerful thing. And again, like, you know, one has to be a little careful with it in the sense that I think that the 20th century had quite a few dubious political movements that were predicated on euphoria and collective euphoria exactly yeah yeah and, and loss of the self right so this is it i think you need to strike a balance <laughs> i think that's important um but nevertheless i think that you know it it definitely um it gives me sense a sense of orientation and meaning and and value to have those moments in my life when when i experience losing myself in the collective and it's much better to do that um in uh 
sports matches and concerts than it is in political rallies and political movements. Exactly. I mean, you know, if if we could somehow have turned many people in Germany and Russia in the 20th century into kind of nerdy metal fans, that probably would have been better for the world. Much, much better. Mm. That's definitely true. You quoted there, uh, Mehr Dinagan, nothing to excess. Um, is that something that you seek in, in your life in other areas? You, do you believe in a, a balanced life? That's... <laughs> uh, yes, I'm not sure I'm very good at it. Uh, <laughs> you, um, seek it. you seek it. I seek it. I mean, I, I, I was fortunate to, to be taught the, the other one, Gnathis Auton, Know Thyself, and yes, yeah. uh, which I think is some pretty solid bits of advice, actually. Um, and I mean, it's, it, it's funny, this is a thing I say at a certain age in my life. There was definitely a moment in my life when I chased extremity as a value. Um, both in music, I got very, very into kind of extreme metal, extreme punk rock, grindcore, gabber, noise, all that kind of thing. And um, I definitely had a phase in my life when I was chasing uh, chemical extremity for, to a degree. Um, and uh, that didn't end well. Uh, <laughs> there's the very short version of that In the short term anyway <laughs> yeah 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 um i think that as i get older yeah a sense of balance is is becoming apparent as something that's worth <laughs> placing some value on and trying to pursue but as i say that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm very good at it but i mean it, even even like um uh, a more practical version of what i'm talking about like there was a long time when i chased quite actively and quite consciously chased this idea of being the hardest touring musician in the world. And I taught all the time. And um, it turned out to be not brilliant for my physical or mental health, uh, or indeed my kind of personality. I think if you're that one dimensional, you become a cardboard cutout quite quickly. Um, and there was a moment in my life when I realized I was going to run out of things to write songs about because I had precisely mm. one sort of experience. Um, and I'd already written those songs. And and um, I don't want to make it sound like my attempt to develop a a Richard life experience was purely a writing exercise, but, <laughs> um, you know, there was definitely, you know, a sense of, um, trying to ground myself. And I'm very fortunate that I started doing that before COVID hit because yeah. otherwise I think that the experience of the last two years would have been harder. I think there's no, there's nothing wrong in accepting that, um, you know, our attempts to live are in part attempts to be able to tell good stories about our lives and our experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I come from a family of raconteurs and, and the, um, the, uh, uh, the need and desire, the skill to tell a tall tale runs deep in my family. <laughs> really? So that's another part of your creativity. Actually. Yeah, and they're not necessarily all true either, as I've, <laughs> I've got older. <laughs> Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. What was it that you turned against in, 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 in your pursuit of excess? Why is it you decided that wasn't a good... Oh, because I was going to die. No, it was going to self-destruction. Okay, that's easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, not, that's not an exaggeration either. Like, it was, um, things got pretty grim for a time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that uh, you made the right choices. To Me too. Of that situation. <laughs> <laughs> Why was it that you were, you said you were, you were, you know, striving to be um, the, the most touring uh, artist or whatever. Was that about a pursuit mm. of excellence for you? Does, do you, do you uh, feel 
driven in that way? Yes, to a degree, that's true. I think that there were a couple of other things going on. I think that I had located one thing that I can, without any qualification, say that I'm good at in life. And I genuinely don't think that of anything else. Um, and, you know, I'm good at touring. I'm good at playing shows. And therefore, I wanted to do it a lot. I do also think, and this is me psychoanalyzing myself or even socio-analyzing myself. But like, you know, um, I, I come from a pretty comfortable background and there's not much in my background that could be described as blue collar. And there was something very redemptive to me about this sort of finding a, a sort of, it's, it's quite sort of T.S. Eliot, the, that sort of honest toil kind of thing almost, you know, the, 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 the hand on the wheel, the, the sailor who has, finds redemption through honest work. It's, I, I sort of felt like I was doing something that I knew how to do that added some small thing to the world in the sense that people seem to enjoy coming to the shows. They tended to come back again. So, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it definitely, I felt like it was something I could lose myself in productively. You mentioned your background and I, 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 I don't know anything about your family background, but one of the things that comes to at least in some of your, um, creative work, um, is the, the location of your background, mm. um, the, a certain rootedness, um, sure something like Wessex Boy and so on. And yeah, is, yeah. That, is that an important thing to you, place? <clears throat> it is, although, I mean, it's important to note that, that it's a, it is slightly more complicated in my experience in the sense that I was shipped out of home when I was eight years old um, to be sent away to a boarding school, which was a deeply dramatic experience for me. And then, um, you know, moved around constantly from age eight and then I went on tour. And, and my writing about home and the sense of home and place in my music, which is definitely there, is in some ways as much aspirational as it is actual. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah, like, yeah. Um, and, I, and I wrote an album called England Keep My Bones that was sort of in part about English national identity. And the reason that I did that is because I just spent two years on the road in America on my own um, and was the only English person in the room. And first of all, that gives you an opportunity to parse why it is that you understand the rules of cricket and nobody else does. <laughs> but it also means that my sense of what constituted home slightly kind of zoomed out, if you like, and home was just England, which I barely went to in that period of time. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't an unadorned, an, an, an uncritical nationalist statement or anything like that, but it okay. was definitely, there was a sense of homesickness. So kind of mixed up yeah. with wanderlust somewhere in there. That's interesting. So it's romantic and nostalgic rather than yeah. rooted. Yeah, well. I think so. You know, and and it's a funny thing. In the last couple of years, I've moved out to the coast in Essex, and I'm having an interesting experience in the sense that, like, I feel very at home here. For the f first time, I've felt at home in this way. It's a new experience for me, and watch that space for future records. <laughs> I will. And is that, if we can get a preview of that, is that does that tie back to sense of connectedness? Are there things of connectedness <clears throat> there or is it something else that's making Yeah, I think so. I mean, I lived in London for a long time and was very passionate about London, but London famously is quite low on the community as, as a sort of, uh, as a feeling, you know, and like, I know my neighbours here and, and there's a real, kind of, there's a there's a local kind of folk circle, which I've sort of got involved in and getting to know everyone who works in the bars here and and all the rest. And, and suddenly, you know, I do feel like a, like I'm situated, if you know what I mean. In, in yeah, I do. Exactly. Actually, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and funnily, like when I was, there was a moment in my life when I wanted to be in London because London was the biggest and I wanted to eat the world and all the rest of it. And, um, I'm, I'm going to sound defensive for a second here, but it's not, it's not so much a case of being defeated in that aim. It's just a realization that like I can, take on being a meaningful participant in a manageable sized community rather than attempting to kind of um, 
eat London. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think one of the things for me at this moment in my life is that I'm, I'm in the middle of trying to sort of engage in, in an exercise of, of acceptance in the sense that it's like the fact that I've now, I think I'm happier here than I was in London. It doesn't mean I was always unhappy in London. I always no. have been here. It means that at a certain point in my life, I need to be there. And at this point in my life, I want to be here. And who knows in the future, you know, but um, for the time being, it's, it's so it's not, a, not all things have to be true for the entirety of your life. We've talked about um, connection uh, quite a bit. Um, and one of the ways in which, of course, we're all connected to other people is through our actions and mm. um, the decisions we make about them. When you gave, a, you gave a talk for the National Prison Radio, we did a series when mm. the lockdowns were on, um, if you remember, that yeah, yeah. Uh, and we, our, our, pastor, our humanist pastoral carers couldn't get into prisons. They still, still can't in some prisons because they still right. won't let volunteers in. And so we took humanists into them and they gave radio talks and you gave one. And you talked about... Um, kindness and connection but you talked about it not just being about um, not just depending on reciprocity and this sort of idea which is common a lot amongst a lot of people who take a humanist approach which is this sort of idea that um, morality is prudential you know I scratch your back you scratch mine yeah, it's yeah, like sure. sort of reciprocal altruism but you said um, something interesting I think which is that you wanted to be able to as a result of your assessments of your own actions be able to hold your head up high yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, um, I don't know why, and I'm not 100% sure that this is in any way unique to me. In fact, well, it isn't. But I mean, I, I, what I mean by that is I suspect everybody does this to a certain degree. But like, I, I, it's, I'm very self-critical. Um, and spend a lot you know it's a, there's a comedy routine i saw somebody once with somebody about waking up in the middle of the night and going ah uh, <laughs> thinking <laughs> yeah. about thinking about an, a careless word that you said 11 years ago <laughs> when when you were drunk and i do that all the time you know um and uh <clears throat> particularly if you've been through addiction issues which i have um one of the things gets taught this is a an aside but let me get to it that one, one of the things i think doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to addiction issues is shame um mm. in the sense that i i feel oceans of shame for the ways that i've behaved at certain chemically altered moments in my life because a lot of those chemicals make you careless they make mm. you callous i should say or at least the ones i was involved in did um and uh so you know i, I spend a lot of time hoping that i can just self-justify you know and hoping that i can look in the mirror and uh, uh, and not be completely disappointed um and i think I, that that's good that's quite a strong motivating factor for me and I, i'm i'm kind of reaching more of a sense of peace with it in the sense that i understand that it's an ongoing process and that everybody goes through this and that there is no such thing as purity or perfection and i think that's very very important um but uh, you know uh one shouldn't let the best be the enemy of the good and the fact that i don't necessarily always hit my marks doesn't mean i shouldn't try but your aspiration is that you want to be able to give a good account of your actions to yourself. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and, you know, I think that um, I, this is possibly I, one of the things I talked about in the, in the prison podcast. But, um, you know, the, uh, Clive James talks about that when on his deathbed saying I should have been more kind that is that my fate to find it out, find it out too late. And I do think that um, in a lot, a lot of ways, the thing that we leave behind to the extent that there's any point in caring about that at all, which I'm dubious about, but anyway, mm. um, it is a record of our actions and, and the, the quality of our actions, perhaps more than the content of them, you know? Um, and I think that when I think about 
friends who I've lost touch with or who've passed away or even just who are distant or whatever. It's not always like the specifics of what they do. It's kind of the way they do it that strikes me and, and, and forms my sense of their character. Um, so it is, a, it is reciprocal in some ways in the sense yeah. that part of what we're talking about here is reputation, you mm. know. Um, but uh, I feel like I'm, I'm not a terrible first evaluator of that. And it sounds like consideration of yourself makes you is making you more generous to others as well in judging their actions. I, I hope so. I mean, and I think that um, I mean again, this slightly different point, but like one one of the um, uh, one of the things that I've found very useful in recent years when assessing my own mental health and my own kind of self regard is that I've long been tried to be generous with other people and their their motivations and their. Uh, foibles, pluses, minuses, whatever it might be. And a lot of people, myself included, don't extend that generosity to themselves. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. that there's an interesting exercise to be carried out there, which is to sort of try and evaluate your own scorecard as if it was somebody that you knew and cared for. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the humanist philosopher Harold Blackham said you've got to be friends with yourself before you're fit to be a friend to others. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, I think that yeah, there's a, there's a, I think being, I think being generous in, in your evaluations of other people is a really good discipline anyway, um, in all things. Yeah, you're never going to regret it. Right. And particularly, I think this is a, a, in the in the realm of politics. I think it's a very, very good thing to do is to try and put the most generous spin on your opponent's um, utterances as you can, because I mean, per, first of all, because you'll never <laughs> beat them in a debate otherwise, um, uh, you know, and there's a, <laughs> Well, but there's this huge kind of straw man thing that goes on where people sort of um, happily cherry pick the worst and stupidest yeah, example yeah. of their opponents. And, and, and it, it, the whole thing becomes just performative and, and utterly pointless, in my opinion. Mm. That's a whole other topic. But, but yeah, I think, I, think, I think generosity and gratitude strike me as two good impulses in life. Be generous with people around you and be grateful for things that you have. Creativity, community, connection, generosity, nothing to excess and know thyself. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> Thank you, Frank, for telling us what you believe. It's been my pleasure. And I feel like, as we were saying right at the beginning, I figure that I now have a better handle on what it is I believe, having had this conversation than I did at the start. <laughs> Good. Thank you. That was Frank Turner telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the first episode of the fifth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK and the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider signing up as a member or a supporter. You can also find out more about humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops. Thank you.